Hi, this is Peter Windsor, podcast for everything F1, driven by the fans, for the fans. Everything F1 podcast. Today, we're previewing the Sochi Grand Prix. We're also interviewing Peter Windsor, and you'll find that towards the end of the podcast. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me, James Tiller. And alongside me today, it's a nice small cast today, we've got Coops. How are you doing, Coops? I'm doing all right. How's it about yourself? Very good. Looking forward to the weekend. Well, having Formula One back in our life, not necessarily uh, Sochi uh, itself. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing race cars going around uh, a racetrack. How about yourself? Well, yes, it's that. Oh, it's race week going now. It's Sochi. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a it's a double edged sword. We're coming off the back of a great McLaren one two. It probably won't be a one two for them this this race round, but you never know. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's Sochi. It's it is what it is. I don't think there's ever been an exciting race in Sochi since it started in 2014. But hey, as you see, it's racing. So let's hopefully see something. It's something to look forward to for the weekend anyway. We've also got on the podcast today, we've got an interview that I sat down with Peter Windsor. Um, you may know him. He's uh, here at the end of the podcast to chat to you all about his career and about what he thinks uh, about the Formula One world as we know it at the moment. So we will introduce that towards the end of the podcast. Look forward to you hearing that. It was a very good interview. And thank you very much, Peter, for coming on and speaking to us. But first, we are Everything F1. You can find us on all of our social platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And we're at the handle at JoinEF1. And of course, you can visit our website, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, you're listening to us on this podcast right now. And that means you can easily hit the subscribe button for us. That will get the latest and newest podcasts straight into your earlobes as soon as the podcast does drop. You can always give us a five-star review and we will read your name on the next available podcast. And while we're talking about five-star reviews, we have had another one from Pink and Dream. Thank you very much for slapping a five-star review onto our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast and reviewing it. Let's head on to the race preview. So, Suchi this weekend, Coops, what can you say? Give me a three-line uh, preview of what you're expecting. First corner crash. <laughs> Not a lot, yeah. Oh, okay. Who, who, do you th- who are you predicting is going to have a crash at the first corner? Well, there's a few guys that have been crashing this year, so, you know, we've got Max Verstappen who crashed into Hamilton. Hopefully, they're not going to be next to each other with Verstappen's three-place grid penalty. Mm. You've got Sonoda. Uh, it's just the way that that corner's kind of designed, you know, it's a right-hander into kind of sweeping left, you know, was it last year that Saints didn't realise how narrow the gap was going full of Stein bollards and nailed it into the wall, he's uh, going too fast, yeah. uh, so there's all there's always some kind of shenanigans at the start, uh, and also because it's such a long straight, it's not really a straight, mm. 
the toe usually gives a bit of an overspeed to some of the cars behind. So, so do you think in qualifying we're going to see a lot of the kind of shuffling about and trying to get a good position and a toe, that sort of thing from their teammates? Yes. Plus, pole is never a good place in such a... <laughs> third, third place is usually the best. It's the better side of the track and you get the toe from the two cars in front. So pole isn't great. It's good for the stats. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actual racing, it's not the best place to be in Sochi, which I think is the only track that you have that has that issue. So, uh, uh, I think the biggest issue, or the biggest question mark over the whole weekend, is whether Verstappen will take the engine penalty to get another power unit into the pool, which is probably the best place to do it in Sochi. Right. Uh, uh, and if you can get... if you get, if, <laughs> Sergio Perez qualifies slightly in front of him. So if Verstappen gets pole, he's fourth. If, if Perez gets third, you could see Red Bull popping the seal of the gearbox for Perez to drop him down to put Verstappen up one. Right. So you could see, I think there could be some game yeah. to get it closer to the front. Uh, and I think Mercedes have to do something because, you know, the rest of the races that are coming up, they're looking, they're swinging more towards uh, Verstappen and Red Bull mm. than Mercedes tracks. Uh, and this is predominantly on a Bottas slash Mercedes track because uh, Mercedes haven't lost the race ever since 2014. Uh, yep, so it's Lewis Hamilton's to lose, really. Uh, let me read out the vital statistics of the track. Okay, so it's called the Sochi or the Sochi Autodrome. Uh, the first Grand Prix was was as Coops had just mentioned in 2014. We're going to have 53 laps of a circuit which is 5.848 kilometres long. The total race distance after the 53 laps is 309.745 kilometres and the current lap record is held by none other than the seven-time world champion himself uh, in 1 minute 35.761 seconds and that was to Lewis Hamilton of course. Now you can view all the sessions on TV 9.30am till 10.30am for free practice one on Friday Free practice two is at one o'clock till two o'clock. And then on Saturday, you've got practice three at 10 a.m. till 11 a.m. And qualifying at one till two in the afternoon. Then it's race day on Sunday, of course. And the race will be on at one o'clock until three. Uh, Of course, those are UK times. So if you're elsewhere, adjust your timings accordingly. Okay, so Coops, who are you expecting to do well this weekend? Probably... probably, uh... Red Bull. So you think Red Bull over the Mercedes, even though that the Mercedes have uh, had a dominant dominance there over the past seven years? Yes, but the problem is Mercedes aren't the same Mercedes that have been in recent seasons. Right. You know, in recent seasons, Mercedes have been pretty much perfect. Is, is uh, this not a track that's suited to Mercedes, though, even even this year? Yeah, but they've not had a Red Bull that's suited to just about everything. Red Bulls have, Red Bulls have passed a car this year. That power unit is faster, it's 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 more reliable. Mm. Uh, the package with uh, it's just a better car, just it's not go it's not gonna be half a second a second difference, but I think Verstappen's gonna have the edge just it's gonna be closer but they're gonna have the edge. And as I say, Mercedes just don't have they're not as perfect as they have been, you know. It used to be Maybe last year and this year, but up until last year, if Mercedes made a mistake, you didn't. You were like, "Oh, that's new." But last year, this year, they've just been 
they're leaving things on the table, they're not quite getting it right, when the opportunities opportunities arise to maybe sneak a point or sneak something they probably shouldn't have got, they've not done it right. It's just, Mercedes aren't the team they were. I think it's partly down to the fact that they've never had a, a rivalry uh, in the, the hybrid era quite as close as this. See, I think I think Mercedes is going to do well. I think because the because it's um, uh, quite a high speed track, a high high speed circuit, uh, and obviously Red Bull are great in the corners. Um, I, th- I think that I think Mercedes is going to dominate this weekend, much to the disappointment of some people. But I think Lewis will win uh, this weekend quite quite by quite a margin. It's it's where else everyone else fit, everyone else sits really. I, that, that's that's my opinion anyway. I think the only thing that will help them is the fact that uh, Verstappen has his three three place good penalty. Mm. And I think I've touched on already. They've got you know they may decide to do the you know the engine penalty of this race uh, as it's probably the most logical thing to do. He's got a good penalty, as you say, on paper and statistically. It's a Mercedes track. Over the course of this season, Red Bull are probably slightly ahead in terms of their type of car. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I don't think they're ahead in the constructors. But obviously, we know these five points clear in the, the title. But uh, yeah, I think this is this is where Mercedes. They, they, it's a it's a must win for Mercedes at this track because the rest, as I've already said, the rest of the season we're veering more towards Red Bull. In terms of their actual, uh, in terms of tracks that are going to suit them, mm. uh, we're veering more towards the kind of the Red Bull. Not by much, but you know, they're more suited to Red Bull. So I think this is something that Mercedes need to capitalise on. Oh, and if they don't, absolutely they do. They, yeah, they, that's why I think this this weekend they, they, it's a track that suits their car more. So they've really got to lay down kind of a good haul of points uh, in my mind. Because as you as you just mentioned in the constructors, Mercedes are ahead by eighteen points, um, but in the um, drivers, it's only only five points clear. So if Lewis does win. You know, that's even if Max Verstappen comes second, there's going to be seven points. So he'll come out of the weekend two points ahead, which will really kind of put the pressure on Max to perform uh, again later in the season. Really, um, so that this is why I think this is probably the best opportunity for Mercedes now. Uh, you know, in the next run of races, to really kind of claw some points to get a little bit clear uh, of the Red Bull for what it will be a more difficult season for the rest of it um, later on in the year. Yeah. It's, it is. I mean, Mexico, if Mexico goes ahead, which I'm not saying it won't, I think the only one that's on the bubble unofficially is probably Brazil. Mm. Uh, I think the was it the World Karting Championships just been cancelled from there. I vaguely remember seeing a headline, I think you put into our uh, group chat mm. during the week, which doesn't bode well for Formula One. But then the thing is, Formula One have a slightly more stringent bubble situation. So... Most of the tracks, like Mexico, one hundred percent is a is a Red Bull track. Yeah, the only track in the year I want Perez to win is in Mexico <laughs> because I just I just want to see the Mexicans go nuts. Yeah, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Uh, it'd be so much fun. But anyway, back to something. <laughs> uh, at the front, as you see, it's it's predominantly Mercedes track. Red Bull have the issue, and they've got to deal with the strategy about what they do with Max. If he doesn't if he doesn't qualify in pole. He qualifies maybe second or third, ends up sixth. I think they'll hit the penalty. I think they'll take the penalty for the for the uh, for the engine or the power unit, I should say. 
uh, which is probably the most logical thing to do uh, and try and bring Perez into the game to try and if he can pip it for the win keep the points away or whatever mm. uh, I think that'll, it'll become more of a strategic damage limitation situation there's going to be shenanigans at the start. There were shenanigans at the start last year with signs going off. Then we had Stroll getting punted by, I think it was Leclerc. Smacked him in the back and spun him round. So there's always something. There's always a couple of bits of carbon fibre getting fired across the track in the first lap and such. <laughs> so there, it may end up being a Bottas special into the rear of somebody's car and take out a few leaders and then we see another random midfielder getting first. <laughs> or it could just... Or it could completely ruin what I've just said and everybody goes around fine and then we just have a normal Sochi race where nothing really happens. Which uh, has we, which we have had historically. Um, let's move away from the, the front two teams. Then. We, I think we've spoken about Red Bull and, uh, and Mercedes quite a bit. Le, who, what are you expecting from the, the papaya, papaya team uh, of McLaren? They're not, they're not going to be up near the front as close to the front or in the front as they were at uh, the last race because uh, we can't forget what happened there. Uh, I think the Monza win, as much as it showed they're going in the right direction, was more to do with the low drag of the car, uh, the track, uh, which suited the car. And such is certainly not low drag. Mm. Uh, but they've got themselves in a good position. I think it's going to be, again, I think it's going to be closer between Red Bull, McLaren, uh, and Ferrari. Mm. Uh, uh, Ferrari really need to do something. Uh, they really need to get a few points and get in front. And Sainz, as much as he's probably been the more comfortable uh, new boy in a team, I think it's been four races out of five or three races out of four where he's binned his car at some point during the weekend and done some decent damage to it. He'd done it at the last race. He'd done it at Zandvoort. I'm sure he'd done it the race before, but I need to check that. But at some point over the weekend, we usually see Sainz in the barrier with a wheel missing or something. Uh, and he kind of needs to not do that, especially now we're in a cost cap era. It's a repair bill that they really don't need. Mm. It hasn't necessarily affected him much in the race or that. He done, he done, he's done solid enough job. I think a redemption weekend needs to be found for Aston Martin. They were just not with it at all at the last one, at the last race. Gretel getting punted about by Ocon, got punted off the track by his teammate at the start. But both of them weren't really there or thereabouts. They were just there. They weren't fighting really. I think it was just a bad weekend overall for them. So they need to come back at it. I mean, Hassel turned up. Which they've done up. <laughs> Do you think it'll be a home Grand Prix win for Mazepin? <laughs> well, they're not. It's not allowed to be a home Grand Prix because he's not even allowed to say he's Russian. Yeah, but it's painted all over his car, isn't it? No, it's red, white and blue of America. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Haas team will turn up. Which weekend will turn up? We don't know. Uh, they'll be there. Uh, uh, and then I think I don't see much change in the terms of order. I think yeah. I think uh, if anything, I think McLaren should just pick uh, Ferrari. I think Alpine, Aston Martin will probably kick around about the same. And then Williams, Alfa Romeo, Haas are probably going to be where we're at. I think I don't see much change in the terms of. Order, really. Well, you've just taken all that off me. There's no mean, no need to introduce any other teams or anything to talk about it because you've, you've just summarised it all. Okay, well, let's go straight to our predictions because there's not much to talk about. As I say, we've, we, it, it's previewing the Sochi Grand Prix is, is difficult because we have had some boring ones there. But I suppose 
we were expecting that of France this year, and look what look what happened. We we've had boring races of uh, France for, for the last few years, uh, but this year was amazing. Mm-hmm. So could could this year and the the fact that we've got such a uh, you know a a season that's, that's delivering surprises every single week, uh, in week in week out, we're getting something to talk about. Sochi could be another one of those. It could surprise us. Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen this season. Yeah. I mean, as you say, who would have thought we'd actually have a French Grand Prix where we're watching it and like, oh, look! Uh, I think last season's French Grand Prix, the highlight show showed everyone's pit stop intro, <laughs> which kind of shows you how the race went last year. Yeah. I mean, as I say, this year has thrown up so many surprises just before the Verstappen-Hamilton incident in the last race. I actually was sitting thinking, this is quite boring. There's not a lot happening. Everybody kind of settled into the routine. Yes, you know, Ricardo was at the front, but it was at the start. I'm like, oh, oh, we'll see. And then, of course, everything happened. And then I couldn't stop watching. (laughs) So it's not historically done that. It's had its moments, generally speaking, at the start. Or in Hamilton's case, when he decided to do his practice starts at the wrong place, got these bizarre two different penalties. Mm. That, that kind of was a bit strange. It just shows you how good we've had it at Sochi when the most exciting part of a race was two penalties that happened and it was nothing to do with the race. <laughs> uh, On the approach to the grid. I think the most exciting ever bit was when Kimi Raikkonen and Bottas, when Bottas was driving the Williams and Raikkonen was in the Ferrari, I think it was 2015, and uh, Raikkonen dived down the inside and punted the... Uh, uh, Bottas into the barrier and he was up for uh, I don't know if it was the podium positions and that was at the end of the at the end of the race that was probably the most exciting part of the season uh, or part of the race for Sochi in any of them uh, and that was 2015 so that just shows you it was a while ago okay well let, let's go into our predictions then Coops who are you predicting to be one two three on the podium uh, first DNF and how many finishes I think it's going to be Verstappen, Hamilton, Ricardo. Oh, you think the McLaren's going to be up there again? Okay. No, it's just, I don't believe it. It's just because I still can't believe we got a 1-2 in the last race, <laughs> so I'm just going to put him in the podium again. Uh, they're going to, Ricardo's on the podium in my predictions for every race the rest of the year. <laughs> uh, Fair uh, enough. There'll be, the first DNF is probably going to be Yuki Tsunoda, and there'll be... 17 finishes. Okay, I'm going to say... Well, I'm going to go the opposite 1-2 than you. Um, I'm going to say Hamilton first. Verstappen second. I think Hamilton will get the fastest lap as well. Just, you know, get that extra point. Um, And then I think it will be Bottas. I'm going to go really boring. So the 1-2-3 was, uh, yeah, Lewis, Verstappen, Bottas. I'm going to say first DNF. I'm going to say Mazepin is going to DNF at home because he'll be trying too hard. How can you try too hard on a Haas? <laughs> he has been trying too hard over the last couple of weeks. Um, no, no. And number of finishers, I, think, I don't think there's going to be many DNFs, if I'm honest. I'll, I'll, I'll go for 18 as well. Oh, no, you went for 17, didn't you? I'll go for, eight. yeah. I'll go for 18 then. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. See who's right. I I honestly do think the uh, Merck's going to going to dominate this week uh, with the Merck of Lewis Hamilton anyway we'll see we shall see and that's pretty much our race preview for the Sochi Grand Prix I'm sure we're all looking forward to it but we know what to expect Um, let's head into any news that might have dropped over the last week (laughs) 
So, Pooch, is there, have you spotted any news that you want to speak about today? A uh, couple of wee bits. Uh, first one is uh, when uh, Grand Huzhou, uh, the Chinese uh, F2 racer, who is still the favourite for the Alfa Romeo scene, mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the $30 million sponsorship that he's going to bring to the team. <laughs> uh, the only sticking point for it is he wants a two-year deal. They want to give him a one-year deal. So that that, that could swing either way. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll go down to a one-plus-one deal, which uh, seems to be quite favourable. Mm. Uh, and also, I, was, I found out... Uh, I didn't find out. I was kind of having a wee look online. And it looks like Volkswagen Group are going to be coming into as an engine supplier when the new engines come in. In 2025? Uh, 2026, I think they're doing it. Right. Uh, it's, uh, from what I can see and what I've heard, it looks like they're going to be getting rid of the MGUH from the engine, mm. which is the, the component that most of the manufacturers don't like because it's probably the hardest thing to develop, uh, which, as Honda found out when they first came in, uh, so that is getting ditched and if the, if that gets ditched Volkswagen Group have said they'll come in uh, looks like some sort of partnership potentially with Red Bull uh, which is smart because Red Bull are doing their own powertrain deal just now uh, and also Josh Capito the head man at Williams is also he's an ex uh, Volkswagen man so uh Quite interesting uh, if they're the, going to be the fourth person, the fourth kidnap person, the fourth manufacturer to come in to the group, mm. uh, to the Formula One fold. Uh, and I think Toto Wolf had said that he'd be quite willing to agree to drop in the MGUH if that would entice the Volkswagen group to come in. Uh, there's still quite a lot to discuss in terms of exactly how that will work, whether that will change the general combustion engine to slightly bigger size and how you know how the makeup of everything works then without the MGUH. But uh, it looks as if it's probably going to happen. I don't think there's going to be much in the way of stumbling blocks for it. So we could see the Audi branding or Porsche. I don't think we're going to see see it because I think see it are owned by yeah they're all owned together yeah but I think it it'll likely be Porsche won't it I think it makes sense they're not going to have you know Williams Skoda uh, or Williams Volkswagen it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really sound very fast uh, so it's it'll be good to see another fourth manufacturer involved because uh, I don't think if Volkswagen Group come in I don't think Red Bull are going to stay as a supplier they stayed as a manufacturer for engines purely out of circumstance rather than actually wanting to do it. So that, that's, that's about it. There's not been much in the last week, really. Uh, everyone kind of tired themselves out in the fallout from Verstappen Hamilton uh, at the, the last race. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And it's got a bit quiet. The F1 world is the quiet. F1 world. Yeah. yeah that's about. Okay, well, that's all the news that we've got to speak to. Obviously, there wasn't much going on this week. But what did happen this week is I got to sit down with Peter Windsor, who you might know from F1 Journalism. You may know as a team manager for Williams, for Ferrari. Uh, He's had many a role on the F1 grid. And he sat down with me on Friday to have a good little chat about his career and what he thinks of the current state of Formula One. Take a listen, and we'll see you on the other side. 
So first and foremost, hello, Peter Windsor. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, lovely day in London town. Uh, should be Goodwood, but I'm not, but there you go. Never mind, next time. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to the Everything F1 podcast. Um, for our fans that might not know who you are, you know, I don't think there's going to be many because you're quite a well-known name down the, up and down the grid, but could you please explain who exactly is Peter Windsor and what, what it is that you've done in F1 so far? Well, it's a very good question. I'm not exactly sure who I am um, myself, <laughs> to be honest, but uh, I'm just a guy that's been lucky enough to work in Formula One for mm-hmm. most of my life. Something that I wanted to do from a very early age, actually, from a kid when I used to be a flag marshal and wow. uh, writing reports for local magazines and so forth. And uh, I can remember going back to school one day, one Monday after a race meeting, thinking this is really boring. And I've got to have, when I grow up, I've got to have a job that allows me to feel good on Monday mornings rather than mm-hmm. depressed. And uh, <laughs> I thought it would take me a long, long, long time ever to create that situation. But I was very lucky and things happened, uh, you know, pretty quickly for me and started writing pretty young age and then uh, basically run the gamut of things you can do in the sport from writing to TV to managing Formula One teams to managing drivers to managing sponsorship programs for Formula One teams. Wow. And generally, uh, you know, <laughs> there is to try within the industry so yeah pretty pretty well versed in the well, formula one yeah, world yeah. then i've seen life from a number of different areas should we say what was your most enjoyable aspect uh, of being in formula one was it just being in formula one in general or, or did you enjoy the management most or the writing about it the most um no i i've never been sort of just in love in formula one with formula one in general that's that was never really a thing uh, I'm not really into supercars or or anything of that ilk. I just, mm-hmm. There were very specific things that I grew up with that I that I was completely obsessed with, I suppose, and 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 it kind of has been that way ever since. It's either been drivers or teams or things that I'm doing, projects I'm doing, and mm-hmm. and I stay very focused on those and and live, eat, sleep, drink whatever I'm working on rather than take a broad brush view. So when I was a kid, you know, uh, Jim Clark was the driver that I revered and my whole motor racing perspective really was seen through the eyes of, of how Jim Clark would have reacted or would react uh, Mm -hmm. and what he was doing. And then later on, I guess I saw Formula One through the eyes of Carlos Reutemann and then Nigel Mansell and equally Frank Williams, Ron Dennis, uh, uh, and a lot of friends I've had through the years. But it's always been pretty focused like that. You know, I wouldn't just say I, I wouldn't just go to a motor race and watch it objectively. I've, I've always got some vested interest going on, probably. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you mentioned someone that we, we can't go any further without talking. You, you worked with Frank Williams uh, and the Williams team as a team manager. That must have been, you know, uh, and it, during a great era as well uh, of the sport for, for Williams. Um, uh, what was it like kind of being with those superstars? Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was team manager Frank, with Frank um, in the year we won the championship with Nigel and the year before that. But I actually got to know Frank very early on in my life uh, mm. when I first started writing and we became pretty good friends, uh, you know, when I was in my very early twenties and we used to go running together and do lots of stuff. 
and away from the track as well. So I've known Frank for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And I first effectively started working for him in, he took me to lunch at the steering wheel club, which no longer exists, but it's a great place where all the Grand Prix drivers used to go just to sort of meet and circulate. And yeah. not only Grand Prix drivers, but racing drivers and motor racing people. And he took me to lunch there in, uh, I guess it was, yeah, it was, actually, no, I have to go back further. It was 77. I remember chatting to him outside the San Paolo Hilton, the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend. And he was saying he was fed up with um, working, fetching and carrying for Walter Wolf and basically being Walter's right-hand man. Walter right. was the guy to whom he had to sell in order to keep everything, well, pay his bills, really. Yeah. And so, uh, and he was going to reboot the team and start again. And, and obviously, uh, you know, we chatted about that and how he's going to get Patrick Nave to drive for him. And he had enough money to buy a March and had two cosmic engines and he was going to start the whole thing. And anyway, 78, invited him to lunch and said, look, you know, I really want to, I really believe that the Middle East is the way to go for money. And why don't you work for me helping generate sponsorship from the Middle East for this wow. new Williams team as it was then. And that involved obviously Saudi Arabian Airlines, Al Bilad, TAG and so forth. So I was very involved with Frank at that point and have been ever since. And yeah, he's just always been a, gl- a close friend. And of course, it's ironic that uh, I was in the car with him when we had that road accident in 86. Yeah. And I, I guess that. it made us even closer um, mm. because, you know, that's not something that you ever prepare for in life. Yeah. I was the fortunate one on the passenger side of the car and got out with a few knocks and bumps. But mm-hmm. Frank, of course, uh, was very unfortunate. And so, yeah, that's made us close ever since. So, yeah, I've always had a close link with Frank. He's an amazing guy. Very... I, I, who am I to say that we share the same interests? We do, but hmm. um, I think the one thing we have in common is that we're both completely passionate about specific things in Formula One. And whereas Frank would love to talk about registration of aircraft and engine numbers, guess what? <laughs> so would I. <laughs> so, okay. You know, we hit it off there and we both had running in common and we both had um, a feel for, I think, for, uh, you know, getting the best from people and the best moment of any race meeting used to be the Saturday night when all the new engines, race engines being fired up at nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, mm. and you'd those engines cracking into life for the first time. And you'd be just finishing a run around Hockenheim or Austria, wherever it was. And, and you knew the race was going to happen the next day. And, you know, the many moments like that I've shared with Frank and, and he'd often turn to me and say, this is why I do what I do. <laughs> Have you got a favorite story about your, your time with Frank? Well, I think that is one, really, isn't it? You know, that yeah. is that is Frank, and um, to me, that's that's what he is all about. You know, he could have been out living the luxury life, but he wasn't. He was always right there with the mechanics, and you know, hearing that engine fire up was always the the, the key moment of his uh, of his week, race, mm-hmm. month, year, whatever. <laughs> yeah, very dedicated, and uh, you know, he he provided a great team because of that dedication as well. Yeah, it's the right word, I guess. But, I mean, it was a completely natural dedication. He didn't have to work at it. He didn't have mm. to say, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'll forsake my holiday in order to spend more time with the factory staff yeah. or whatever because it never occurred to him to go on holiday in the first place. So it was <laughs> dedication as such. It was just doing, doing what he wanted to do, but he did it at an incredibly intense level, as I think most racing people do, to be honest. I mean, I'm talking about Frank, but 
there are very few what I would call real racers in Formula One who aren't like that. And, and that's one of the great things about the sport. You know, it's full of incredible people with enormous uh, capacities for applying their brains and their energy into doing what they do well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, how about Nigel Mansell was one of the drivers that I think has become a good friend of yours, hasn't he? Well, Nigel's been a very close friend since 1978 uh, when he was racing, just beginning his Formula 3 career. And we became very, very close at that point, And we've remained close ever since. So there's nothing recent there at all. Uh, I just talked to him last week, actually. And he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's very similar to Frank. Obviously, a completely different sort of personality, but he is a racing driver at the end of the day. Mm. And, uh, you know, Nigel would be the guy... If they were running out of the trenches, he'd be the guy leading the platoon into the into no man's land. Or if he was, you know, if we were going anywhere treacherous or perilous, Nigel's the guy you'd want to have on your side, larger mm. than life. When I met him in '78, uh, again, you know, we had a few things in common, obviously behind the scenes. But he was by that stage, he was already a karate black belt, a three handicap golfer, and. Wow. He was doing, and I encouraged him to do his PPL, and he got that. In, he went solo in 15 hours, and wow. he was an incredibly good snooker player, very good, as I say, very good rifle shot. And he was, uh, you know, he had all those athletic tray trays, and 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 above all, he drove racing cars beautifully. Nothing white knuckle about Nigel. It was all fingertip, and all sensitivity and feel, and that uh, that's always been something that I've really. Um, you know, really enjoyed watching. And I think, you know, whereas some some journalists have a very good eye for slightly different profile front-wing end plates, I actually find mm. that quite difficult to see. I get right. a bit, sort of, you know, I've seen one, I've seen them all sort of thing. But the one <laughs> thing I do feel, you know, I've enjoyed doing from day one, even when I was flag marshalling, was looking at the differences between drivers, not necessarily racing lines, but the way they use the steering and the throttle and the brakes and the way um, the, the way they manage the car mid corner dynamic, the way they manage dynamic weights of the car, and and that to me with Nigel was very obvious. The first time I saw him at Thruxton in '78, he was had this beautiful touch, and mm. uh, yeah, and and it, it never went away. And I think a lot of people misunderstood Nigel because he had a very firm handshake, and he was a very outward going, demanding person, and they assumed that right. was the way drove but that isn't the way he drove he had an incredible touch <laughs> uh yeah he did uh were, were you kind of with with him during that kind of rivalry against senna uh, and and kind of what was it like from his side of the garage and, and managing him at that time was he yeah yeah no i was very close to nigel i was working for williams at that point i was running the sponsorship department with sheridan finn and uh and obviously nigel was nigel and i were very close at that point yeah uh, you know, I, I knew senna i knew it very well from his formula ford days Thanks mainly to Keith Sutton, a great photographer who used to send out five or six black and white prints of Ayrton's activities from the weekend. Uh, and as sports mm -hmm. editor of Autocar, I used to get them through the post on the Monday morning, every Monday, and then five or six prints of Ayrton Senna doing whatever he'd done in Ford 1600 or 2000. And so, and I got to know him at that point quite well. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was obviously incredibly good. And we hung out a bit and so forth. But when he got into Formula One, particularly when he was um, at Lotus and, and I guess obviously then at McLaren, he 
it was kind of strange because we drifted apart. And the main reason for that was because he was, you know, I knew that he constantly used to phone Frank in the evenings uh, twice a week sort of thing because he really wanted to get Maurizio Googleman into the Williams, his friend. Right. And, and I felt that he was always trying to a little bit undermine Nigel to Frank. And I've always felt, you know, it's one thing for a driver to race another driver on the circuit and perhaps to do things that they shouldn't be doing, but actually to say things about him behind the team manager's back, I think mm. is a little bit below, you know, but so we, we drifted apart then and I was very much obviously in Nigel's camp and I always felt mm. that Nigel matched Ayrton virtually in everything he did. I mean, in the wet, Nigel was just brilliant and I still, um, still, you know, still puts the hairs on my arms up when I think about Nigel passing out on the outside of Blanchimont uh, at Spa. And, mm. you know, I think some of those moments, uh, you know, moments in, in time, and obviously that outbreaking thing into Turn 1 in Barcelona was very Nigel as well. <laughs> well, let's get back onto your career then. You, you yeah. obviously have, uh, did your team management uh, from, from Williams, but then you, you left and, and, and went on to do, was it a bit more journalism? And then you went on to broadcasting as well? Um, yeah, I did a lot of things. You know, I've always always felt that I could do a pretty good job running a race team, you know, if I could put one together and just get good people. I've always felt that race teams are just about basically good people doing things logically rather than politically or, uh, or that way. So I've had a few goes at <clears throat> trying to put groups of people together. Now, mm-hmm. one of the most enjoyable times, <clears throat> excuse me, of my life was when I worked for Ferrari. Uh, John Barnard had left uh, the facility Ferrari had in Guildford in England where they designed yeah. and built the Formula One cars. And uh, he left, basically left one employee standing and I took over the next day and we had to build four cars around new new Goodyear tyre dimensions uh, for crash testing and then obviously testing, physical testing. And I had to hire and fire sort of a staff of about 50 in the space of three weeks. Wow. And, not fire, hire. And <laughs> four okay. cars built. And we had an incredibly great, that's the wrong word, we had an incredibly um, harmonious team there, brilliant people. And, and a lot of them were new to Formula One. They were guys I hired from Marconi just down the road and places like that. And, and we did mm. that. You know, we got the job done. And I think that period, uh, that year really, I think was, you know, one of the most enjoyable of my life, putting that team together and making it gel and making it work. And at the end of the day, we produced, I think, very, very good race cars. It was a year of Prost and Mansell at Ferrari, and mm. uh, the car was a lot more competitive, actually, than it had been in '89. So it was that was a good thing. And you know, I've always I've had those moments when I've been able to put a group of people together and it's worked really well. Mm-hmm. And for, for whatever reason, usually financial, but financial modified by politics, it hasn't yeah. happened. So on a few occasions, I've had to accept a kicking the backside and getting back down to doing what I can do next. And um, so, yeah, I've had a number of different reboots, I guess, in that sense. And, and TV was was something that I quite enjoyed doing because, or still do, because mm-hmm. it involves working with a team. And it's a little bit like running a race team. You know, you've got your sound guy, camera guy, and equally, it's kind of up to you in terms of what you're going to say, how you're going to present it, what angle you're going to take, what is worth talking about anyway. And there's a lot of things to consider. And and I find that quite satisfying, actually. 
I think, you know, I think we're quite lucky, all of us, to have the social media tools that, that are out there now to be able to do what we're doing right now, for example. So yeah. this didn't exist 20 years ago, and how it evolves, I think, is an interesting thing. But, yeah, you know, I grew up at a time when it was critical to learn to touch type. In other words, to be able to type with your eyes shut mm-hmm. using all 10 fingers because typing and writing stories is what it was all about. Now the written word has virtually gone out the window and all <laughs> video, video, video. I don't even think it's podcasts actually because I don't really see the commercial end to podcasts. I think it's all video. And mm. I think um, video is, you know, requires a lot of skills. It requires presentation. It's, it requires good content. It requires editing. It requires a number of other massaging tools as well. So that's fascinating, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's something we're all we're all going through ourselves, you know. We're always trying to find new avenues and that and that sort of thing. Um, well, let's let's move on to the, to the current state of F one then. Uh, I think you were quoted a couple of years ago saying uh, we need to stop trying to change uh, and, and, and keep the sport how it is. Are, are you happy with the changes uh, that the sport's undertaken over the last few years and and going to uh, in the future? Well, I, am I happy? I mean. <laughs> I'm not a person who should be saying I'm happy with this, I'm unhappy with that. That would be Ross Bourne's job. But I, from my perspective, not too much has changed. I think yeah. they're fiddling around with sprints and the qualifying system. I'm not a, I'm not one for that. I, you know, I, I'd like to go back to the old point system where it's down to sixth place only in nine six four three two one. You know, I'm yeah. a traditionalist, always have been, always will be. But I'm not afraid to uh, accept the you know whatever's out there and make the best of it and be positive about it and that's what i do but uh, i'm not a fan of the sprint race thing i i much prefer qualifying because i'm a great believer in the perfect lap being one of the great things of formula one and i I think that yes you can kind of put the perfect lap together in qualifying for the sprint race but it's compromised and it's not not as not as pure as it was so mm. I think that's gone, and and I think that's sad. And I and I, when I was writing for F1 Racing and writing a column there, many times I kind of repeated the point that I felt Formula One should be a lot more open in what it does because there's so much of interest between Grand Prix weekends for sure, and then equally uh, over the nights of Grand Prix weekends. And I and I don't think any progress has been made in that area at all. You know, we still see a Williams mm-hmm. coming in with. A rear, a, a rear suspension failure and they push it into the garage and the first thing they do is shut the garage door. Why? You know, why don't we, we want to see what they're doing and we want to see the work. And there's this thing about the Formula One teams must be so secret and protect all their, their uh, you know, their, their, their DNA, if you like. And I don't, I just don't buy that. I think if Formula One wants to be seen as technical and as the pinnacle of the sport, then I think we need to be out there sharing that technology with the fans. And that involves watching what goes on the garage in detail. And if there's a quote unquote technical problem, we need to know what that technical problem is and how it happened. It's a human story and everybody makes mistakes. You know, there are a way of presenting human stories that do not affect anybody, but nonetheless tell a tremendous about tremendous amount about the brilliant people in Formula One. And I think we're losing all of that. And none of it's been captured. I agree with you uh, to in, in many aspects of that. I, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of the sprint race myself. Well, the sprint qualifying, you're not allowed to call it a race. Um, but, but well, it's I all call just it a race because it is a race. Why would yeah, it? it is. It's just confusing, isn't it? It's just confusing for fans. It's confusing for, I think, the teams, uh, essentially. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 
I'm not sure it's confusing because it is a race and has a, a start and a check and flag. So it's a race. So there's nothing confusing mm. about it. The only thing is it's not a pure um, it's not a pure thing. You know, if you take Monza, reality is, of course, that Lewis probably would have been on the pole in a normal qualifying session. He probably would have won the race from start to finish. Mm. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, isn't it great, therefore, that we didn't have that because that would have been really boring. But, you know... <laughs> It is what it is. You know, if Lewis Hamilton at Monza is the quickest car driver combination, then he deserves to win, providing he, he himself doesn't make mistakes. But because of the system, it kind of yeah. got changed. That's all. I'm, you know, I think if you're a Max, if you're a McLaren fan, Daniel Ricciardo fan, you think, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, if you're Pierre Gasly, you'll say, no, it's terrible. You know, I think <laughs> I just think we're overcomplicating it because we constantly think there's something wrong and we need to improve it. We don't need mm. to improve it. What we had was perfect. All we needed to do was open the doors and let people see what was going on. Open the garage doors to see the technology. Wire up the drivers as they're driving to and from the track in the road cars to see what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> and do live, or not live, but edited if you like. But we need to see what they're doing in the debriefs and how they're mm. chatting. And when a driver's annoyed, we want to see it. We want to see the fight he's having with the team manager. Or we want equally, we want to see him putting his arm around the team manager and crying or whatever it is. We want to see all that stuff. And if they made all that accessible, we wouldn't have to worry about making all these, you know, changes all the time mm. in the hope that it'll suddenly hit some sweet spot that makes everybody happy. It's, we've got the product. We just need to open it up. That's, that's my point. And I just don't think we need to keep changing the sport because the product's fine as it is. And a good example of that is golf. I mean, when Tiger Woods was dominating golf and winning by seven strokes, you could say, oh, that's really boring. We know who's going to win. But golf made it really interesting. But when Formula One has a race in which the driver leads from start to finish, it's you know, fashionable to say, oh, isn't that boring? We've got to change it. And I, you know, I think we don't change it. We just do a better job of presenting. That's my point. So what's your what's your view on this year then? Uh, you've got the two kind of you've got the young pretender to the throne, uh, Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton, and it's it's probably the best season we've had at least for a six or seven years. Um, what, what's your take on it? Who, who who do you think will win? Well, I mean, normally a, a closely fought season is earns that title because you got two drivers in a championship winning team in equal cars fighting one another for track space at every race at every corner. Mm -hmm. as we had with, if you like, with Lewis and Nico. We've got it this year, um, but not between Lewis and Valtteri, obviously, between, effectively between Lewis and Max. But they are mm. in very different mechanical packages. But the reason I think they're so close is because we're pretty far into these current technical rates. They're both on the same tyres, obviously. Mm. And at this point of, the, of this era, there's not much between the engines or the chassis, as we can see, even though the Mercedes got a very different aero philosophy to the Red Bull, but it all kind of balances itself out. And mm -hmm. quite often in the course of the season, they are contesting the same piece of road. And um, I made the point in a video a couple of weeks ago about how the very great drivers effectively tick four boxes of talent. And, mm -hmm. and the drivers just below that possibly tick two, maybe three, but very rarely four. And I think Lewis and Max are two guys that do tick all four boxes. And so when either of them come up against the other, it's not the same as racing with somebody in the slightly lower tier. There is no room actually 
to do anything other than give way to the other one and use some other methodology to get past, whether it be uh, strategy or whether it be use of DRS or maybe fuel or, or power harnessing, whatever it is. There's very little scope on the way the circuits are now with a lot of tight corners and chicanes, particularly change of direction chicanes. There's very little scope for those two guys to be able to pass one another um, or even fast corners, obviously, cops at Silverstone, to be able to do much with one another. And I think another factor, of course, is that if every year racing is getting safer, the cars, the driver's equipment, and obviously the circuits. Hmm. And the more we go in that dimension, the more potential invitation there is, even for drivers of Lewis's and Max's quality, to go for it because there's no real downside other than hitting the other guy or hoping the other guy's going to back away. So I think those are all the parameters that lead up to what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. I think as an overall comment, I mean, a lot of people have been saying to me, you know, Max needs to give way here or Lewis needs to do that. And what do you think of this? And he did this and he did that. I think you've got to take a much broader view because if you start focusing at that level, it becomes almost claustrophobic and it's very difficult to make objective judgment. The one comment I would make, really, just to sum up, is that I think both drivers tick all four boxes. I think Charles Leclerc does as well. And I think, um, and just as an aside, I think if Charles was in the Red Bull, I think Lewis would be having just as much trouble with Charles as he's having with Max, or vice versa. So I think, you know, that has to be borne in mind. It's not just Max or Lewis. Uh, But going back to Max and Lewis, I think that um, Lewis's greatest, I mean, Lewis ticks all those boxes. and, And as well as all of that, He's always been unbelievably good in terms of track craft and staying out of trouble and passing at exactly the right moment in exactly the right way. And he's always been very good at knowing the driver that he's racing with and, and, and therefore doing that and executing that pass the way he does. It isn't just magic. He actually mm-hmm. thinks. But my impression is this year that whether it's his string of world championships, whether it's whatever – I don't think he knows Max Verstappen perhaps as I thought he should know Max. And I think there have been a couple of occasions when Max has surprised him. And that's very unusual for Lewis because normally he's never surprised. Normally he knows what the guy's going to do before he does it. And so I'm saying obviously bitter experience now is coming into play, but I'm a bit surprised, for example, at Monza. I think it was Lewis's corner and I think Lewis – had every right to be where he was. Yeah. But I was surprised that Lewis's train of thought wasn't, Max is on, on hotter tyres here. He's obviously going to go in. There's no way in the world we're both going to get through that first chicane. <laughs> I might as well just give him room and I'll just try to get him on the run out of the chicane through the Curva Grande or in the next couple of laps. But, yeah. but I know what he's going to do. So the one thing I'm going to do is make sure we don't run into one another. I think you could say, well, why didn't Max think that? Well, Max will never think that way because he's actually not Lewis Hamilton in that respect. He's not as quite as good as Lewis in that respect. And he's right. never shown that side of his talent, this ability to read other drivers. He's just a racing driver. Very, very good. But he doesn't actually differentiate between drivers the way Lewis has done in the past. And I think that's, that surprised me at Monza. At the end of the day... It all could have been avoided if Lewis's mindset had been, I know what Max is going to do next, and I am coming out of the pits. For sure there's going to be an issue if I try to force it. I'll let him go. And, mm. and that's what 
you know, that's what Alan Prost would have done at that point, I think. It's probably what Nicky would have done. It's for sure what Jackie Stewart would have done. Mm-hmm. And, but Lewis didn't do that. And I don't know whether that's because there are a lot of people at Mercedes who are sort of saying, go for it, go for it, or whatever. But, you know, that little aspect of Lewis's talent just seemed to fade away at Monza, I thought. And, and you could argue maybe at, at Cops as well. You know, I don't think he's reading Max as well as he has read other drivers, as, re- as well as he read Nico after a while, to be honest. Yeah. So if you had a five, had five pounds to put on, on one of the two to win the season, who would you put it on? Would you go with the old safe hands? I don't, I don't really bet. You know, I bet in golf <laughs> sometimes and I'm usually pretty lucky. So I don't, I don't risk, my, uh, risk my luck in Formula One in that respect. I okay. think, you know, Max has got the better package. And in theory, he should win it. Um, so that's all I would say, really. Okay, that's fair. Uh, one last question for our fans. We, we always try and get them to some informa- inside information about kind of what track and what circuit would be the best one to go to. If they, if they had their money to put on a, an, an abroad track, so it could be Europe, uh, Americas, Middle East, which, which circuit do you enjoy going to the most for the whole weekend experience? So for the whole kind of event, what, what would you advise our fans to go and, go and watch? Does it have to be a race that's on this year? No, it could be any, any historical race, any, any oh, past, well, present, be- future. Yeah, it would be Suzuka, Japan, for sure. Um, I think you can go to Japan and know nothing about the country and be completely bewildered by it, but you will always be impressed by certain areas. And if you've got a feel for the country, you love it. And I love the organization of going to Japan and the way the circuit is. I love the way the fans are. Mm -hmm. And I love Suzuka. I think... Excuse me. I'm outside having some sort of... Um, contra sort of Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton deal going. No, uh, <laughs> no, Suzuka is just a wonderful circuit. It's great. You can see a lot of the cars. Virtually every corner has got a character that's, that is unique. Every corner is unique. And I think the S's up the hill certainly turns one, one, I call them 1A, 1B, and then mm. the S's. I think that's, that's possibly the best bit of racetrack in the world. And, uh, yeah, I just love Japan, really. I love the dawns, the, the dusks. I love the rain when it comes. And I love being at Suzuka. I think it's just a, it's just a great circuit. John Hugenholtz designed, he designed the original Zandvoort and then he designed uh, Suzuka. So, you know, hats off to him. Brilliant. Hats off indeed. Well, all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for coming to join me today, uh, Peter. It's been really interesting talking to you. If only you could have a bit longer. (laughs) No worries. Brilliant, mate. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with Peter Windsor. Thank you very much for coming along and speaking to us, Peter. We really appreciate you coming on and chatting to us. It was such an enlightening interview, uh, and it's great to hear those inside stories. So all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Coops, for being my co-star. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you very much to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Make sure you do follow us on all of our social medias. We are on Facebook, where we've got lots of fans, 26,000 of you. Uh, On our Instagram and Twitter, we are still quite far behind. So we would love you to go and slap a like or follow on those two social networks. Uh, We're also on YouTube. And again, we'd like a like on there as well. We're going to be adding loads more content on that at some point very soon. So we're at the handle at join EF1 on all social networks. We're also on our website, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, you're listening to us on this podcast now. Hit the subscribe button on your, on your podcasting service and get 
us in your earlobes as soon as the podcasts drop. Thank you very much. We will speak to you next week when we do review the Such a Grand Prix. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.